0: And welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we're librarians with Beaufort County Library in South Carolina. And this week, we are going to be discussing books for men. Since we're two women, we tend to focus on books that appeal to us. Yeah. And so we're, we wanted to do an episode devoted to books that are appealing to lots of different people, right. we should say, but are mainly marketed towards men.
1: Right. I'm going to call them dude books (laughs) for the remainder of this episode. Um, And so we wanted to give sort of a caveat that we don't believe books are gendered. We think that people should read whatever they want to read. We actually kind of hate as librarians the idea that people should read one type of book. Or people should read anything. Read what you want. Right. Read what you want. (laughs) Um, But having worked on a reference desk for several years, you will definitely find patterns Mm -hmm. in the types of books that various demographics ask for. And it's funny because I think that women read more widely than men do. Well, I was just
0: about to say, what's interesting to me about this is these are all books that I had read that I'm going to talk about today on my own. uh Chose to pick up on my own, read them, liked them. Mm -hmm. Now I'm talking about them today. None of these were ones that I picked up specifically because I thought, oh, I need to find a book that would appeal to men. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, you could go into a lot of history here, but I think generally the consensus is for a long time, men were more well represented in publishing as right. authors, and so it was. How do I say this? Women were sort of had to read men right. and women authors, but men could choose to read only men because there was such a variety right. of right. men writing, and so there became this sort of bias that men wrote better books right. than women, and and anyway, it's this whole history yeah. in publishing, and that's not to say that there aren't men who will read women authors mm-hmm. or vice versa, or read you know read widely, and all these things. But there are definitely books that seem to be marketed towards men right. and targeted right. towards
1: m- male readers. Right. Well, it's funny whenever whenever I have a patron come up to the desk and they they'll they'll pick up the New York Times list that we keep at the desk, and um, women will will pick all the same stuff that the men pick, but not. The men will only pick certain authors and the women will say, mm-hmm. Oh, I want this this right. Lee Child book just right. as much as, as men will. Right. We definitely don't want to say that that if you don't want to if you want to be a man and read whatever like female author, then mm-hmm. then go for it. So mm-hmm. but but I think that we find as librarians, people often will ask us, especially women will ask us for book recommendations to give us gifts for mm-hmm. for men. And and these might be some ideas if you right. if you are inclined to do that and we also only limited ourselves to fiction because it seems like the default so often for men is well men read non-fiction yeah, like and history and, and yeah, biographies. And and there's and, already a bunch of issues that I have with that but <laughs> but in so so yeah we limited yeah. ourselves to fiction Just because I business. think that sometimes that's harder for people when they're looking for gifts for people so
0: before we get going I want to say there was one book that I wanted to recommend but then realized we'd already recommended it on a different episode and that was dark matter oh, by Blake yeah. Crouch. yeah <laughs> <laughs> because I think that would be a great book as a gift for a man or to recommend to anybody to read, but has a lot of appeal for different people. because It's like science and sci-fi. Yeah. Physics. Yeah.
1: Good stuff. All right. So what's your first one for me? Uh, The first book I actually did read for the podcast um, and mainly just because I've had it on my list for a really long time and I wanted to get into it. I think I could have swapped out some other stuff for things I'd already read, but I picked The Neon Rain by James Lee Burke. And this is the first in the Dave Robichaux series, which started in the '80s and it's still being published. Um, I think the twentieth book I want to say just came out a couple of years ago, so um, so it's very long-standing. But he doesn't he doesn't just whip them out like like other authors that have long-standing series. And I know they're very well respected for the writing, and and it shows when you read the book. So I talked in the deep dive uh, episode that we just did. Um, uh, last about hard mysteries and this is the perfect example of, of a modern day one um, often hardboiled will be set or or was written in the 40s and, and you sort of picture that film noir style this is this is a current uh hard-boiled but has all of the the same um elements that you'll find in classic hard where there's a the, the tone is really dark and gritty and violent and it features a dis a, a detective who's disenchanted with the world um, and in this case, the detective is Dave Robichaux, and he it works in New Orleans. He's a Vietnam vet, and he's also a recovering alcoholic. His wife has left him at some point before the story starts. I can't remember if it's years or, or fairly fairly recently, but he's the perfect recipe for the damaged loner detective that decides to take the law into his own hands, basically. So he's on a fishing trip when he finds the the body of a, wo- of a young woman floating in the water, and he finds out... Um, once she's recovered that the that she's a prostitute and the official report says that she drowned but when he found her he saw suspicious needle marks in her arm that didn't follow the normal patterns of a a drug addict so he insists that she was murdered and that it was a a, um, cover-up to to make her look like she just died as of an overdose um but when he insists on this that doesn't make him popular with the local authorities that i think are outside of his jurisdiction i think it's a, a Um, sheriff's department that that um, is dealing with this case and so they don't like what he has to say about it when he starts to poke around and he also finds out from an informant at the same time that his name is being thrown around as the next target of a Nicaraguan drug lord named Julio Segura who is living in exile in New Orleans and as he's investigating the girl's death he finds that she was linked to Segura and that uh, Segura was using drug money to find the Contras in Nicaragua. So Segura is basically your all-around bad guy. He kills his people in horrific ways when they disobey him. He terrorizes women. He sends thugs to torture and, and try to murder Robicho. So he just, sounds like a peach. Yeah. <laughs> your best friend that you'd want to hang out with. And so Roboshow expects this kind of behavior from a thug. That's that's his, you know, that's nothing new for in his line of work. But he realizes that the police that he's working with also don't want him poking his nose into this case. And that they don't seem to think that a prostitute's death warrants very much attention. And he he feels like there's some reason for that. And he also encounters a U.S. government agent who is acting suspicious. And he realizes that Segura is just the beginning of um, a conspiracy that, that he's fallen into himself. So it's all around a dark and menacing book. The tone is incredibly dark. It's firmly set in the seedy underbelly of New Orleans, which is very far away from the tourists. There's certain points where they overlap a little bit, and it feels very odd to have him in in the French Quarter, kind of seeing people taking pictures. It's it's just not the world that he 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 lives in. But there has to be some overlap because this is just the setting. But, but that sort of adds to the level of grittiness that you find because you're, you're like, oh, this, this just feels strange to have him seeing all these tourists and stuff yeah. in this moment. Um, but the atmosphere is really well drawn. You can feel the humidity and the heat of the swamp, and you can feel that the city is just sort of simmering with tension with all of these different different groups that are battling underneath the surface and of course there's a love interest who wants to save Robichaud. there's there's a woman who's all light and innocence and completely not of his world um, which is also something that you'll typically find in this kind of book that that she gets mixed up into into his um, his exploits um, and and comes to danger so it's full of action and vice. It, I confess that when I read this, a lot of the slang didn't make sense to me. And in, in fact, one of the big plot points I don't understand because I just don't know what the slang means. And I tried to look it up and I couldn't find anything. So if you read more of this type of book, then then hopefully you'll understand some things more. Um, I don't think for for my part, it really affected the enjoyment of the story. But there's a point of why someone finds something out that I I just don't get. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm not a drug overlord (laughs)
0: you're not secret life
1: (laughs) so it's very evocative of film noir Uh, it has it has just a lot of of atmosphere so um this would be a great pick for someone that that enjoys that that type of setting and it's called the neon rain by james lee burke and then you have lots of books if you like this one too you have 20 more books go off of yeah (laughs) does he write another series too um i don't no actually i know he writes standalone books too oh, okay. so but i'm not sure if there's another series i'd have to look up that this was the one that i know is is really really famous but if there is a series i'll link to it in the notes no
0: i was just trying i was curious all right so my first one is doc by mary doria Russell. So this is my way of still getting a female author.
1: <laughs> i know that's Down part with of the, the patriarchy of, yeah <laughs>
0: But no, I really do believe this will appeal to Ben. So it is, I can't really, I can't believe I haven't talked about this book before on the podcast because I really love this book. It is about Doc Holliday. So it's a Western, but sort of like when we talked about the deep dive for mysteries, it's like a literary Western. Mm -hmm. It's not like a pulp. Yeah. Yeah. Most everybody is familiar with the gunfight at OK Corral I mean, just sort of the Basics I've been of that. There. Have
1: you been? Yeah, there? Okay, many office? times. It's a huge tourist trap. It's I, I bet. Very yeah. kind of disappointing
0: in the end. Yeah. But still, still. But a lot of people don't know about Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday's lives before that big moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the gunfight's like four minutes long or something, isn't yeah, it? Super yeah, it's, it's super fast. short. This is obviously it's titled Doc. It's mainly about Doc Holliday, and his name is John Henry Holliday. He grew up in Georgia, um, but after losing his mother to consumption, which he also gets, which is TV, right? Tuberculosis. Yeah, Yeah. Um, he moves to Dodge City, Kansas, in the hopes that the drier air will improve his health. And he trained to be a dentist, but his health prevents him from practicing that on a regular basis. And so, by the time he and his lady companion end up in Dodge City, (laughs) gambling has taken over basically as his professional career. Although he does still dabble in dentistry, but Mm -hmm. it's not his primary. He has to keep the Doc. Right. He's still Doc. <laughs> Once he's in Dodge City, he makes the acquaintance of Wyatt Earp and befriends his brother, Morgan. And actually is, the way it's represented here, better friends with Morgan than with Wyatt Earp. Although what you mm. always hear about is Wyatt and Doc Holliday, right. which I think is interesting. Um, so the beauty of this story, to me, is that it brings the Old West and these characters to life and they become... Fully three-dimensional people, not just these mythic figures that you hear about in the the lore of mm-hmm. the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. And I think it's really about these men defining who they are, figuring out what they want to be, what type of people they want to be, in kind of this lawless, old west, mm-hmm. dusty town, you know, with gambling and guns and prostitutes and just, you know, all these, all these staples of, of a Western. Um, it's really, really well written. I, I just can't say enough good things about this book. I found it engrossing and interesting. I think it would appeal to a wide variety of people. But I think that um, with the focus of this episode being books that would appeal to men, I think it would, there's a lot here for um, a history buff, somebody who likes Western, somebody mm-hmm. who likes, well-written book. somebody who you know did biography biographical information so she did a lot of research for it and um there is a follow-up to this book called epitaph which is about oh, the gunfight yeah. at the okay corral um so if if you like this one you can always move on to the mm-hmm. epitaph afterwards and if you're feeling because it does end right before they mm-hmm. leave to go for the gunfight so that is doc by mary doria
1: russell also hard to find books that are about male friendships mm-hmm. it doesn't come up nearly as often as female friendships so that that can be a nice thing yeah I had actually it was so funny
0: because hopefully we'll do a western episode mm-hmm. because
1: I had like
0: now I guess we don't need to do a western episode but I had like three or four different yeah. books that were all sort of literary westerns that I've read yeah. and I thought this is not something I would consider myself to be right, right, right. interested in. But I mean, Lonesome Dove—I've talked you love about Lonesome Dove so much. I love this book. There was a book called *The Sisters Brothers* by Patrick Dewitt. I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just funny to
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I stay away from it because I'm I'm from the West, and yeah. so it does it isn't romanticized at right, all to me. So I right. go to Tombstone, and I'm like, ah, uh, oh, this again. Because every time <laughs> someone comes to visit you, you go. Yeah. I mean, Tombstone was pretty far away right. from where I grew up, but but you still, yeah, and he, we have lots of friends in Europe that yeah. want to go to, to Tombstone. Right. Well, that it's makes just, sense. It's, you have to pay to see everything. Yeah. Let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah. Oh, and fair warning, if you read this book, you're definitely going to want to watch the movie Tombstone. Ooh. And you will be picturing Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday.
1: <laughs> or That's at least I do. That's not a I bad did.
0: thing. Okay. What's okay.
1: your next one? My next book is The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. And this won the National Book Award in 2013. Um, James McBride has written lots of other books mm-hmm. and, and not historical fiction. So this was kind of... Um, felt a little outside of what I was used to from him, but it was it was a great book. So it's narrated by a 12-year-old slave named Henry Shackelford, and the narration itself is really interesting because it's written in dialect, and that takes some getting used to, but it's really, really well done, and it adds this sense of realism to the book that you wouldn't get otherwise, and kind of adds a lightness to the book um, because it's a 12-year-old that's telling the story versus an adult that's that has a different perspective than, than what um, a 12-year-old would have. So Henry is a slave in 1850s Kansas, and he has a chance meeting with the fa- the famous abolitionist John Brown, who was also either from Kansas or, or lived in Kansas primarily, which I didn't realize until, because you always think of Harper's Ferry, right. West Virginia, and, and it's just interesting of people, how people move around during <laughs> that time. And so John Brown takes him in, but mistakes him for a girl because um, Henry has delicate features and wears a sackcloth kind of garment like a smock sort of thing um when he finds him and so and he he calls him little onion as (laughs) his 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 nickname for him you're
0: gonna start calling my dog that
1: (laughs) it's actually my nickname or I have a niece that I call onion because her name is Alin and she couldn't say it when she was a kid Mm -hmm. so still sorry 24 year old (laughs) (laughs) Alin (laughs) you're still a little onion to me (laughs) so Henry decides to go along with the the mistake that he's a girl um just for his own safety and he joins John, John Brown's group of men as they're roaming the countryside trying to enlist people um, and trying to gather funds for the abolitionist cause. But because Henry is thought to be a girl, he's often completely overlooked because as a black girl, he's pretty much the lowest rung on the social, social totem pole. And so he's able to witness all kinds of events that he probably wouldn't have been able to otherwise just because he's invisible and people don't even notice that he's there. So he meets famous historical figures like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. And what I found really refreshing about this book is that they aren't treated with the kid gloves of, of history. They're real people with flaws and aren't always shown in the best light, which um, we, we don't do mm-hmm. typically with, with historical figures. So particularly those that were inv- involved in the abolitionist cause, that's just not how we, we talk about it. We know what happens to John Brown at the, at the end of, of his life, and the book leads up to the fateful raid on Harper's Ferry and it focuses on the maddening nature and the chaos of the cause that he, that he was working toward. And he goes to really violent lengths to, to, uh, see his vision carried out, but he's, he's just a fascinating character in this book. And, and it's, it's just more, much more enlightening, I Mm -hmm. think, than, than what you would get from, from reading a biography, um, or, or just, just the legend that we have in our heads of him. Um, I found it really moving at the end. It was, it just was not. It didn't go in places that I expected it to. So, um, it's kind of a literary adventure novel in certain ways. Um, there's, there's sort of this action that's happening, and there's comedy, and it just has a lot of range. And so, it would appeal to a lot of different types of of people. Sort of like with Doc, there's there's history, and there's this well written story, and there's this um there's there's action in in the fight at the end there's there's just all kinds of things that can can grab someone for this book and so the title again is the good lord bird by james mcbride and i i really loved it it's great i have to read that that's been on my list since oh yeah i think you'd
0: really like it i think i would all right my next one is the quiet game by greg isles it's the first in a series it features pen cage who is a former lawyer who now writes novels for a living, and after the death of his wife, he moves back with his daughter to his hometown, which is a small town in Mississippi. Yes, Mm -hmm. Mississippi. Uh, And as soon as he arrives, he finds out that his father is being blackmailed. His father is a judge, a well-known, well-respected judge in town, and he tries to trace down who is blackmailing his father, and as he does that, He discovers some mistakes that were made in the investigation of the unsolved murder of a black man 30 years before, and he makes some unguarded remarks about it to the local newspaper. And the next thing you know, family of the victim is approaching him about what he said and begging him to reopen the case or to help them look into this, and and he's still juggling this investigation he's doing into who's blackmailing his father. With the publisher of the newspaper, Nate, who, her name is Caitlin Masters, who is incredibly attractive, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two of them try to unravel exactly what is going on and in the process uncover uh, a huge comp- conspiracy. It's a really fast paced, gripping book. It's great for fans of John Grisham because it's got that lawyer aspect Mm -hmm. like a legal thriller Um, but I don't feel like Greg Isles is as well known as John Grisham I mean I I do know he's fairly popular but I don't feel like he's the common name that John Grisham is maybe because his movies haven't or his books haven't been made into movies or something but um, but anyway I thought it was incredibly gripping in fact I passed it on to my dad once he was done he really really liked it as well and read some other Greg Isles books after that fact so that is The Quiet Game by Greg Isles he writes giant books too they are huge yeah they are so you're gonna throw your back out I know. if you carry yeah. this around i know i looked into getting one on audio and it was like <laughs> 35 hours or something i was
1: like yeah maybe i'll just read it yeah <laughs> all right what's your last one for us my last book is bad monkey by carl Hyacin and i included this specifically because it exhibits dude humor so <laughs> well um it i i confess that a lot of the the books for men that i've i've read are mysteries because i picked them for my book club and and that's just what appeals to me um and so i i hesitated a little bit because i thought this could kind of have some of the same themes as as uh uh the neon rain but it's such a different book the tone is just completely different even though there's a lot of the same like drug running and and Mm plot points are, mm-hmm. are very similar, but it's told in a completely different way. So the book starts when some tourists on a deep sea fishing day trip off the coast of Florida reel in a human arm, which is still sporting a very expensive wrist watch. Um, and so the arm somehow ends up in the freezer of the disgraced Miami police detective Andrew Yancey, who has been forced to work as a restaurant uh, inspector in Key West after he assaulted the husband of his girlfriend. So um, all... <laughs> comic hijinks that you'll read lots about. <laughs> um, Andrew is a simple man who just wants <laughs> to enjoy a drink and a great view from his porch. But in order to do that, he has to somehow stop the luxury home next door from being built and spoiling everything. And that's really his primary motive in, in life. So he's been asked to look into this mystery by uh, of the arm by his former boss. And he, um, he hopes that being that that solving this mystery will allow him to get his old job back so it's kind of under the the table of how he he's asked to to do this and he eventually finds out that the arm belonged to a man named nicholas sterling and that his adult daughter believes that his his new wife her stepmother named eve murdered nicholas so andrew's quest to prove eve's guilt makes him go in increasingly bizarre directions um, and he picks up along the way the a love interest, of course, to, who is named uh, Rosa Campesino, and she's a Miami coroner. And so together they take the investigation to the Bahamas where they meet a decrepit voodoo priestess who has a monkey that's rumored to be the one from Parrots of the, of the Caribbean. <laughs> so all of this is completely outlandish and, and somehow it all fits together to create a farce that's both hilarious and horrifying at the same time. I, I read an interview with Carl Heisen where he said that he, when he writes these books, he also writes um, a column for for a newspaper in Florida. I can't remember for which city, but he thinks that any time he's come up with a completely over the top plot, he hears some news story that that blows it out of the water that he's, he's like, Oh, this is just Florida, Oh, Florida Florida will keep going and being Florida. So, um, my, I assigned this for my book club, uh, last summer. And what I thought was interesting was that everyone thought the book was funny and I have mostly women, but, but a few men in my book club and the women. So all all around, they thought it was funny, but the women thought it was funny in a kind of disapproving. We're going to shake our heads at how, how dumb, all of this is but the men totally got it and they identified with it and that's it it just was very enlightening to see how how they approached it just in completely different ways um so basically this is a tonal mix of a jimmy buffett song and (laughs) the movie the big lebowski so if you're a fan of either of those they are perfect (laughs) um, reads for for that kind of person um i don't really enjoy either of those things very much but i was surprised at how endearing i found this book and Mm -hmm. it was just it was just fun. It was, it was different than anything I had read before. So I think I talked about looking forward to a a new Carl Hiaasen book in one of our book previews. And that one is actually considered a sequel to Bad Monkey. It's called Razor Girl. And it has the same, I don't think it's a, it's a, it it features Andrew Yancey, but I don't think that he's the main character in the book. So it's kind of a side thing. So I'm not sure how those fit together because I I never ended up getting to that. But yeah, a, a lot of, there's, there's great cross appeal for this, but but if you know a dude, he'll think this book is funny. funny. <laughs> That's Bad Monkey by Carl Hyasson.
0: And my last one is The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach. So this is a book about baseball. Uh, Henry Scrimshander is a baseball prodigy and is recruited to play shortstop for Westish College, which is a small private school in Wisconsin. And they have an okay baseball team, but actually, it's actually somebody else on the team that sees him and he's like this phenomenal shortstop. And so he convinces mm-hmm. him to come and play for their baseball team. And he is, he like, I don't know much about baseball, but he's like <laughs> uh, getting closer and closer to breaking a, his baseball idol, but it's a well-known record of like the most games played with no errors. Oh, okay. um, and as he's doing this, the team is getting better and better and getting closer and closer go- to going to the national championship. But something that came very naturally to him starts causing him to second guess himself and mentally fall apart. He at one point throws the ball and it goes way off where he's intending it to go. And mm-hmm. it ends up hitting one of his teammates. And that just causes it to snowball into this whole mental breakdown for him. Oh. Like he starts not being able to play very well. And it's this whole he's in story of him falling apart yeah, and his potential just going out the window. Um, You also get the story of other people in the college. You get uh, other people on his baseball team, including his roommate, who is this amazing character who's just sort of like very graceful and like loves literature, like loves learning. Like he doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like a typical baseball player, but Mm -hmm. he's actually very good at baseball, very cosmopolitan. And so it's opening up Henry. He's lived in this small town and, and before then. So he opens him up to the wider world and then the college president has a role and the college president's daughter has come back to live with him and she plays a role and then there's Mike Schwartz who's the baseball player that originally discovered Henry who is not sure what's going to happen to him after college. So you have all these different characters like almost like a coming of age story for mm-hmm. all of them but it's also combined with the story of the baseball team and whether or not they're going to make it to the national championship at the same time that Henry is totally falling apart because yeah. he was what they were relying on to help them get to this national championship this when it came out I think it came out in like 2011 maybe mm-hmm. um it was like it was a best of the year book on a lot of different lists I think it won awards and um it's very well written but it's also just like a good sports story yeah uh so I think it would have a lot of appeal to people who like sports and but also like literary fiction right. so that's the art of fielding by Chad Harbach
1: it's kind of interesting too when you find a lot of a lot of male protagonists are are middle-aged men mm-hmm. or or older mm-hmm. it's not super often that mm-hmm. you find books that have like a college age yeah. guy that's yeah. it's just or usually it's told involving women right so right. it's yeah. just different so yeah it was cool. it
0: was i really enjoyed it but it and it was different from what i usually read yeah
1: all
0: right so we will be right back with what we're reading this week
1: Reading this week. I just finished The Daughter of Time by Josephine oh, Tay. Have you read that before? I read it in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why I love it, because it's a signed reading, but that teaches you something, but it's a mystery, which I think is cool. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's a classic British mystery that was written in 1951, and Josephine Tay is considered part of the golden age of mystery writers writing the first half of the 20th century, and this is probably her most famous book. It's technically part of a series and it which features a character, her detective inspector Grant but I've actually never read any of the others in the series. I've read other books of hers that are standalone, but I haven't read um, any that feature him. But this one definitely can be read al- as a standalone um, if you don't want to. I think it's number five in the series, so don't feel, I mean, I encourage <laughs> series reading, but don't feel like you have to read the first five, in, or the first four, in order to to get to this one. So in in what makes this book kind of remarkable and famous is that inspector grant has broken his leg um on a different case and he's stuck in the hospital for a while um i don't know how long because old-timey hospitals i think held people a lot longer yeah. than they do now but he's completely bored he's been there for a while and he's just at his wit's end with with boredom so he has an actress friend named marta who brings him a stack of pictures of famous faces um that from paintings throughout history and he she knows that through his ad- through his detective work, he is fascinated by by faces, and he's often mesmerized by the insights that they bring him when he examines the facial features of people that are involved in crimes. So he he will often be able to tell who is the criminal and who is the the victim without having any background information. Um, he's he's been known to just pinpoint who who the in, in a lineup who the the criminal is just by their face, and and sort of can can articulate why that is but it but it's more intuitive than than anything else so as he's going through these pictures he's struck by the face of a person in late medieval clothes and he thinks that it must be the face of a a respected judge or magistrate but he, he realizes that he finds sensitivity and sadness and wisdom in this face. And when he turns the picture over, he sees that it's a portrait of Richard III, who most people remember as being famous for killing his two nephews, who were the rightful heirs to the throne of England, and then burying their bodies in the Tower of London. So, when Grant realizes that these are the same people that this is this person that he's heard about for for his entire life, he doesn't believe that a man with this face can can do such a thing. He just says they don't go together and that he's going to set out to find more um, information out about richard and he realizes as he as he gets um, some books brought in for him that Richard's entire reputation is built on the writings of people who either had lived after Richard had already died or were his enemies in life so something isn't adding up and and the more that Grant reads the more he feels like he can determine who actually killed the princes in the tower it, it, to me this is just a crazy fascinating book it's it's an interesting it's it's fascinating on different levels too it's interesting as a um, like an intellectual exercise I love that it it applies the techniques of criminal investigation in the modern day to a historical question, which is just That's amazing. Yeah. It's mind blowing. It's yeah. so revolutionary and, and cool. Um, the book was for me was an assigned text. I think I'd read it as a kid or like as a young history loving nerd teenager, but then it was assigned in a tutor history class that I took in college and it was really cool. Um, kind of in the way that I, I talked about reading longitude in In college as well as an assigned text, it's really neat to see um, lessons in how to think about history taught through fiction and or I guess in longitude, it was narrative nonfiction, but but something that that wasn't just dry. That was just an amazing experience for me. So so you learn things about how history is constructed um, and that it matters who's telling the story and that you can't trust sources without looking at context and that's true of both history it's true of detection it's it's true of all kinds of issues in looking at the news there's just just so many things that, that this applies to that that this book teaches those skills so it's also um, fascinating to me that even though historians have long believed that Richard is probably innocent of the crimes that he's accused of, his reputation hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. We we still, as in popular culture, think of him as being this hunchback mm-hmm. nephew murdering despot. Mm-hmm. So um, that hasn't changed in the 500 years basically this event happened. So So that's very fascinating too, that no amount of specialist knowledge can ever change that Thanks to Shakespeare. Basically, um, it's a great mystery. It, it's important what in what it teaches. Um, it can be kind of dense reading because there's a lot of people involved um, that have multiple names based on their family name and their uh, title. So sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. But there's a very helpful family tree at the start of the book. So utilize that. Um, but I think it's I think it's amazing. I think it's just a, a revolutionary book. That is The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. Did you talk about it in your book club yet? Yeah, we did. We, did. we actually read it for the book, the book right, club.
0: Well, I saw Marianne on Facebook saying she hated it. And oh, yeah. Curious.
1: Yeah, I think I convinced them that it was important. They still, it, the British Crime Writers Association voted it the greatest mystery of all time. And I think even the American arm of that said yeah. it's like the fourth greatest mystery of all time. And they did not feel that yeah. way. Um, but I think that it's, it's not so much a mystery that's based on plot. It's yeah. more about what wh- I think it's a really important mystery to read to understand how these things are, are how you need to think right. about things. So, um, yeah, I really that's love curious it. How that went. Yeah.
0: All right. The book that I listened to this week is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Trevor Noah is the host of The Daily Show. He's a comedian and this is his memoir, but this is not a comic memoir in the same way like, um. Tina Fey or right. Amy Poehler's or Amy Schumer, all these people who've recently come out with memoirs. This is about his childhood and young adulthood in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And he was raised uh, in South Africa, but he and he was born to a black mother and a white Swedish father, which according to the Immorality Act of 1927 in South Africa, which was a law against interracial relationships, mm-hmm his very existence was a crime. You know, he violated this law. He basically grew up with a single mom. He had, his dad was in his life, Mm -hmm. but not a huge presence in his life, but they had a relationship. It's not like his father abandoned them. Mm -hmm. So his mother is a very strong figure in his life. She believes in education and morality and independence. And so she she ingrains all of these values in him. But he is living during a time that when he's first born, apartheid is still in existence in South Africa. And then it's abolished, I think, when he's about six or so, and then democracy comes when he's maybe about 10. So as as we well know, that those things don't just stop one day. I mean, all these entrenched classist systems that were in place for so long are not going to just magically disappear. Right. So he's dealing with apartheid because he is a, of mixed race, because his mother is black and his father is white. He doesn't necessarily fit in anywhere um, because they're the white people who have all of these benefits, but he's too dark to be considered white. He's too light to be considered black. And then there are what they call colored people, which are mixed people. Mm -hmm. But generally, those are children of colored people. So he doesn't really even fit into that group. And because his mother is black and raises him as a single woman, he he lives in black neighborhoods. But then then they move into a white neighborhood. So it's like he never quite fits in. Yeah. Uh, he talks about being a child who was alone a lot. Not that he was lonely. He was just alone a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ha- they faced a lot of poverty. He saw a lot of violence. Um, so the whole his whole story of growing up is fascinating. And then the second half of the story really, well, I don't know if it's the second half, the latter portion of his memoir discusses his mother re- gets married to a man who is abusive. And talks about what it was like living in the house with somebody who's abusive like that and the volatility and unpredictability of, of his outbursts. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I mean, he definitely injects some humor. It's more wit than straight up yeah. jokes or anything like that. But this is a serious story about what it was like for him growing up in this, in this country with this system that's completely appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I listened to the audiobook, which I highly recommend. I think that if I had read this on paper, if we're going to go by Goodreads, like it would be a solid four star book. Yeah. But the audiobook really elevates it because he's telling his own story, which I always find incredibly valuable to hear somebody telling their own story. And it's it's more touching and it just feel it resonates mm-hmm. more. He has me. such a beautiful voice, too. such a beautiful voice to listen to. So if you are an audiobook listener, if you are, if you like memoirs, if you're interested in this, I would definitely say pick up the audiobook. It is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah.
1: Okay, so Anne, let's go back and list off everything we talked about today. Okay, so I talked about The Neon Rain by James Lee Burke, The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, Bad Monkey by Carl Hyasson, and what I read this week was The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay.
0: And I talked about Doc by Mary Doria Russell, The Quiet Game by Greg Isles, The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach, and what I listened to this week was Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at @wellredpodcast. Podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your other podcast provider of choice. Our podcast is engineered by Adam Farver. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at BeaufortCountyLibrary.org slash well dash red, where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this episode. Thank you all for listening and happy reading.